Let us pray. Father, come among us now, even as we have sung, have your way with us. Take our lives and let them be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, you may be seated, everyone. Good morning. Good to see all of you here again on this, this wet Sunday. And um, I would invite you to take out your Bibles or devices as we look to our gospel reading from Matthew 22. A couple of things as you're taking out your um, Bibles or pulling up your devices I want to remind everyone of. Um, the first thing is that next Sunday is the time change. So we fall back an hour, okay? So um, please make a note of that. Um, so that you get here at the right time, if you're planning on being here next Sunday, especially with Bishop John's visit. So before you go to bed next Saturday night, set your clocks back an hour. You get an extra th- hour of sleep, in theory, next, next Saturday night. Uh, second, Bishop John's visit is next Sunday. So we will be having a number of people confirmed and received into membership in the church. And you still will need to pre-register for the service. We will have one service, just as we've been having. But then in addition to that, following the morning service, weather permitting, we will have a socially distanced picnic outside. So you need to pre-register for the picnic, and I'll say this again at the announcement time, but you need to pre-register for the picnic separately from the service because we realize there may be some folks who aren't comfortable coming into a building for a public gathering like a worship service who may want to come to the picnic. And the picnic we will be doing carefully with social distancing, all the food will be packaged and everyone will sit socially distanced, and we'd invite you to bring your own chairs for that as well. We will have some special activities and games for the children and the youth during that time. So we're looking at Matthew 22 as we continue our focus on stewardship and focusing especially on verses 34 through 40. I want to give credit as I begin to um, a particular author, Erasmo Merikakis, who wrote this wonderful commentary and set of meditations on the Gospel of Matthew. And I've used a lot of his material today because on this text, he wrote so many wonderful things in this ginormous three-volume set. It's about, it's about 4,000 pages on the Gospel of Matthew called Fire of Mercy, Heart of the Word. A friend of mine gave that three-volume series to me as an ordination gift back a number of years ago. Verses 37 through 40 of Matthew 22 are quite familiar to us because we recite them every Sunday at the beginning of the service. These words from Scripture that I just announced to the congregation a few minutes ago immediately follow after the Collects for Purity where we pray that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. These verses from Matthew 37 through 40 are known as the summary of the law, where I say, hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says, you shall love the Lord your God. And then I continue. And we say that every Sunday immediately after the Collect for Purity, because the summary of the law, these verses in verses 37 through 40 in Matthew's gospel, give us a clear picture by God's grace and and the power of the Holy Spirit of what growing to perfectly love God looks like. So it's the solution and the remedy to the prayer that we lift up to the Lord during the colic for purity, if you will. Now, as we're looking at Matthew 22 today, 
Here we find a continuation of what we read about last Sunday with the religious leaders once again trying to set up Jesus and discredit him. Last week it was the Pharisees. And then if we would look at verses 22 through 33 of Matthew, which we didn't read today, which are sandwiched kind of between last week's gospel reading and this week's gospel reading, we see the Sadducees now doing the same thing. So we've got both camps among the religious leaders trying to set Jesus up. But now in our gospel reading today, we shift back to the Pharisees once again. And this takes place as we read in verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. So Jesus has silenced the Sadducees. And so now the Pharisees being the great guys that they are, they step in again and see if they can't get the job done. But what we have here just as we saw last week, and also two weeks ago with the rich young man in Matthew 19, is really a clash between what I would call the mind of the flesh, meaning carnal, worldly ways of being and thinking and doing, and the mind and the heart of God. A way of being, thinking, and doing that grows out of intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Let's talk a moment about the mind of the flesh. The mind of the flesh seeks to somehow tame God, if you will, in the words of Merikakis. And I'll quote him a number of times in this sermon. So this lawyer Pharisee, scripture says he's a Pharisee, but he's also a lawyer, is in part trying to make an argument about the proper ordering of God's commandments, as if there is some hierarchy where some commandments are less significant than others. And he is thinking in external and superficial terms. That's something we need to understand here. Because his thinking in, in superficial and external terms demonstrates a complete lack of grasping what the heart of a relationship with God and obedience to God is all about. The mind of the flesh the thinking of this world, thinks in terms framed by this temporal world. A small, limited perspective, which is defined by merely human parameters and constraints. The mindset of the flesh asks eagerly things like, what is the minimum I can do, or what is the minimum I can get by with and still be acceptable to God? The mindset of the flesh asks, what can I do within my own human abilities and striving to have peace of mind about things of eternal significance? The mindset of the flesh asks, what is it that I can do by my own efforts to feel justified and to purge myself of any sense of guilt before God? The thinking of this Pharisee lawyer is the same kind of thinking we saw two weeks ago when the rich young man came to Jesus in Matthew 19. If you recall, when we looked at the rich young man, I said that this young man was trying to view things in transactional terms, in the sense of asking what kind of a deal he could negotiate with Almighty God. To quote New Testament scholar Craig Keener on the rich young man in Matthew 19, the young man wanted a teacher. He did not want a Lord who demands sacrifice. 
Murakakis calls this a managerial approach to piety. The mind of the flesh, the way of thinking and trying to relate to God that we see all around us in the world, and tragically even in some regular church attenders, frames things in these ways and asks questions like those just mentioned. Questions and ways of being, thinking, and doing which have their root in this world and in temporal carnal thinking. But then we have the mind of God. The mind that comes from God, the mind of Christ, which God offers to us, offers to you and me as a real living possibility. And that is something quite different and wholly other. Something that is not developed or generated from within ourselves or from our own striving and human efforts. Again, to quote Merakakis, while men are eager to find out the minimum we can get away with and still be acceptable to God. And I love this. Jesus wants to set fire to our hearts so that our whole being can be fully, can become fully alive. Let me read that again. While men are eager to find out the minimum we can get away with and still be acceptable to God, Jesus wants to set fire to our hearts so that our whole being can become fully alive. And this is possible through God, but through him alone. We know this because God's word tells us it's possible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, St. Paul reminds us as believers and when we're wholly committed to God that we have the mind of Christ. Through the power of God at work in us, we know this is possible because Jesus said, and he would never have commanded this if it wasn't possible, where he commands us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In loving God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind, Jesus is calling for complete and total surrender to him. Surrender of the entirety of our being, who we are and all that we are. He's not speaking about externals or superficial human efforts. He is calling us to something far more profound and radical than that, brothers and sisters. A deep, he's calling us to a deep interior transformation of our being, something which only God can do. Something which only God can do in us. Something which only comes through surrender. Again, to quote Merikake, speaking of Jesus' opponents, what they need is to catch the fire of the Holy Spirit. And be done once and for all with all their mincing of concepts and spiritual haggling. Brothers and sisters, what you and I need is to catch the fire of the Holy Spirit. To fully surrender. God who is calling us has a legitimate claim on who we are. Do you understand that? Do we understand that? God who calls us to himself. God who calls us to surrender has a legitimate claim to who and all that we are. He has that rightful claim because he is our creator. 
He has this claim because rightfully because he alone is our redeemer who is able to transform us and make all things new through his transforming power and the life of his kingdom in us. And please hear me. God does not demand our whole being is some sort of tyrant or judge who wills to annihilate us. Rather, God calls for the surrender of our entire being, if you will, like a lover who sees us so precious in his sight that he will not allow the slightest capacity of our being to be squandered or wasted as we surrender to him. God calls us to surrender out of his great love for you and for me. And from this place of transformation through Christ, then we are able to love him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. And only then as we love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind, can we ever begin to love our neighbors as ourselves. But the converse is that only as we love our neighbor as ourselves are we able to then grow in loving God even more fully with our whole being. The two are inextricably linked in God's kingdom. The mind of the flesh starts and has its end in me, in you. The mind of the flesh starts and has its end in broken and fruitless human efforts. Apprehending, laying hold of the mind of God begins with surrender. Surrender. That's a very countercultural term. Surrender. So that God then transforms us and conforms us to his will, giving us his heart, mind, and purpose for our lives. And all of this out of his great love for us because he wants none of what he is making us to be squandered or lost. In framing this idea around giving, Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, tells this story. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. So he took it to his king and said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as the gardener turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this. And he said, my, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if I gave, if you gave the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my Lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and merely dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. 
So the king said, let me explain that gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. This story that Keller tells illustrates the essence of the contrast between the mind of the flesh and the person who has embraced the mind of God. And brothers and sisters, this makes all the difference in how we approach stewardship. Not only stewardship of our finances, because stewardship really isn't about money in the end. It's about us. It's about the entirety of who we are, our time, our talents, as well as our treasure. And whether we have the mind of the flesh or the mind of God really dictates, do we present ourselves to God with a clenched fist or I'll give what I have to give to get by and I'll, I'll make a pledge to get by and somehow assuage my conscience? Or do we present our God, ourselves to God with hands and arms open wide in surrender, knowing that all that we are, all that we have, is alone and solely by his gracious hand? It affects how we think about things like tithing. Is it that, oh, I can, Scripture says a tithe, and that's the minimum, and I can get by with that? Or is it, God, you've blessed me incredibly. What can I give you in thanksgiving as an act of worship for what you have blessed me with? We are incredibly blessed people. In the midst of COVID, we are incredibly blessed people. Let us not forget that and frame our perspective that way when we look at the world around us. I don't mean just the United States, but when we look at the entire world. I don't think there's a person sitting here this morning that's worried about where our next meal is coming from. As I said a few weeks ago, thank God we have masks to wear and hand sanitizer that we can use. Are we trying to get by with the minimum with some sort of a transactional way of thinking? Or are we opening our arms wide with surrender to the Lord? We don't do fundraising at All Saints Church. Anybody that's been around here for any length of time knows that we don't do fundraising to meet the budget. Why is that? Because it's not a biblical way to do things. That's why we believe that we don't. We don't do that because that's what we believe. We ask everyone to pray, to seek the face of the Lord, and ask God what they should do as an individual, as a household, as a family. We don't use gimmicks. You won't see a big thermometer up here. You won't see goal, financial amount goals set because we ask people to seek the face of the Lord and ask God what he's calling you, what he's calling each of us and all of us together to do. 1 Corinthians 16, St. Paul writes, not concerning the collection for all the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, 
I will send those whom you are credited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. The idea of setting something aside in proportion to what God has blessed us with is what St. Paul talks about here. Even more directly in Malachi 3 verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Listen to this. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. It doesn't mean that we give to get. It doesn't mean that we give to manipulate God. But when we lift our hearts and our lives and all that we have in full surrender to the Lord, watch how God will provide, even when there doesn't sometimes seem to be a way forward. And I would say this, until you have taken that step of obedience according to God's word and tithe, you will never realize this reality. I know it doesn't make sense in the mind of the flesh. It doesn't make sense with the natural mind. But that 90% or less goes much further than the 100% when it's surrendered and we commit our finances and our being to the Lord. And let me say this. This is not, I'm off script here. Um, I want to say this, though. Folks, youth, if you've got a part-time job, now's the time to start tithing. Don't think, whether it's you or someone else, we'll start tithing when we get to this point. Um, It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Because if you won't be faithful and surrender to the Lord in small things, you won't surrender when the greater amounts come either. That's just the bottom line. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of intention. It's a matter of trust and surrender. So when we think of giving, when we think of stewardship, not just of money, but of all that we are, are we going to think in transactional terms? Are we going to think about the minimum we can do to somehow assuage God, which never works because it comes from a heart of the flesh and the mind of the world? Or are we going to look to God who has every rightful claim on our lives and on the entirety of our being and out of love for him and being set on fire by his spirit? Will we throw our arms open wide? in love, in thanksgiving, and say, Lord, what are you calling me? What are you calling us to do? And it will not be burdensome because as 1 John chapter 5 reminds us, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Brothers and sisters, that only happens when we have the mind of God, when we seek God for the mind of Christ, when we throw our arms open wide and surrender to him. And then all of a sudden, as God does his sanctifying work in us, as he sets us on fire by his spirit, our delight is in the law of the Lord. Our delight is to obey God's commands. And it's not a burden anymore, but it is a joy. It is a joy that God in his great love pours into us. So this week and next week as we pray about what God would have us to do in terms of finances and even what God would have us to do in terms of service in the life of this church beyond finances, 
I would ask us all to pray. Perhaps you want to set aside a day or two to fast and to ask the Lord, God, show me how you want me. God, show me how you want me to more fully surrender to you and to trust you and throw my arms open wide and give you the rightful place of ownership in my life, even in greater measure that I've already yielded to you. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your incredible love for us. God, thank you for the the incredible claims you make upon our lives because you are God and because you have made our redemption possible. And Father, in that you call us to yourself out of your great love for us. So Lord, mold us and shape us. Lord, any aspect of our lives, of my life, that is still set on the mind of the flesh and the ways of this world and transactional thinking, Lord, by your gracious hand, strip that away in Jesus' name. And Lord, fill us with the mind of Christ. Fill us with the fire and the power of your spirit as we lift our lives in full, complete, and total surrender to you, the one who gave your all for us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.